Hi, this is David Spray from the IC Disc Show. I am really excited to announce the interview with Neil Block of Baker and McKenzie. Neil Block is referred to as the godfather of the IC Disc. Neil has been doing IC Disc work since its inception in 1971, and he really has an amazing background on the IC Disc. The breadth of his knowledge and experience is just amazing and fascinating. He's really funny, engaging, and he just has one uh, story after another about IC Disc over the last 50 years. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it with Neil. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So how are you today? Doing fine. Thank you for uh, taking time to be on the IC Disc Show. So, uh, well, let's just get right to it. Um, I'd like to start out by just reading your uh, uh, your bio, and then we can, uh, if there's anything that I uh, left out from the bio that you think is relevant to add, uh, please, uh, please add. Uh, Neil Block received his BS with high honors from the University of Illinois in 1964 and passed the CPA exam in the same year, receiving an Illinois silver medal and the Elijah Watt Sells Honorable Mentioned. He received his JD from the University of Chicago in 1967. He was admitted to practice law in the District of Columbia and Illinois in 1967. Uh, upon graduation from law school, he served as an attorney advisor on the U.S. Tax Court from 1967 to 1969. And I believe you joined Baker and McKenzie in 1969 then. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, Mr. Block was also uh, an adjunct, adjunct professor of taxation in the master's in tax law program at the Chicago Kent School of Law from 1986 to 1990, where he taught a foreign taxation course. Um, Neil is a frequent contributor of articles on the extraterritorial income exclusion, foreign sales corporations, and domestic international sales corporations. And he has uh, had numerous publications. Uh, he's also published a book for Commerce Clearinghouse on the extraterritorial income exclusion and foreign sales corporations and domestic sales corporations. So um, is there anything else that we need to add that you think is uh, is important about your background? Well, I just published the BNA portfolio. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. So can you just talk a bit about that before we get started? Uh, yeah, I think I was chosen by default. The, um, there was an export incentives portfolio primarily devoted to foreign sales corporations for a while, or for quite a while. And I was asked a number of years ago if I would uh, update it. And as it turned out, the update would, was needed was for DISC rather than foreign sales corporations. And there was almost very little on that. So I got together all of my outlines and from the speeches I gave and articles I wrote and um, uh, came out with the most recent version of the uh, export incentives uh, just uh, this earlier this year. So it's hot off the press. It's the BNA awesome. portfolio, 603, I believe it is. Okay. Well, thank you for uh, for the reminder of that. Um, anything else uh, about about your uh, your bio that we should mention, or can we go ahead and get uh, started with some of the questions I have? I'm sure that the questions are more important than my bio. <laughs> Okay. Um, 
So I'd like to start off with um, just to kind of set the stage. Uh, I believe that a, ta a law professor of yours encouraged you to specialize. Can you uh, just share that story of uh, of who that was and uh, you, know, you know what his thoughts were on that? Well, I, well, I wouldn't consider his encouraging me because it was a general comment that he made to a class. Oh, okay, okay. Corporations and something. I don't know if he was looking at me, but he said something to the effect that you didn't have to be the sharpest tack in the shed in order to be successful if you could specialize in an area that nobody else knew about. Okay. And looking around, which where I had all these. Uh, Ultimately famous people. I had John Ashcroft in my class who became the attorney general. I had a guy that became had his own chair at uh, uh, in California at Berkeley. I figured maybe I ought to uh, start specializing. So uh, <laughs> when, when I got off the tax court, uh, the disc uh, was just being introduced as a uh, as a new tax regime, and I figured, well, I might as well be on the ground floor and become a specialist in that area. And so that's how it started. I commented on proposed regulations and uh, tried to learn as much as I could about the area. And uh, I'd say for a long time, no more than five or 10% of my practice was in the DISC area, but I sort of stuck with it until I sort of got a name for myself and eventually uh, had it as a major uh, focus in my practice. Okay. And so from then, uh, so basically from the, the time that you joined Baker and McKenzie in 69, was the DISC legislation then already, were they already starting to talk about it? Because I don't think it was it was actually enacted until 1971, is that correct? That's correct, but it was being introduced, it was being talked about, and there was there was a predecessor called the Western Hemisphere Trade Corporation, which I wasn't aware of at the time, which was somewhat like the DISC. It, um, it provided an export incentive in a, a bit of a different manner, more of an arm's length uh, transactional na nature, but it was within the code itself. Okay. And so you'd mentioned that you uh, you had the chance to to have some input or commentary on the proposed regs. Uh, what were your initial thoughts on the disc when you first uh, you know, started to read about it? Uh, well, since I was pretty naive, I had no idea of the fact that it was something I wanted to get interested in and um, uh, try to know as much about it as I could. I wasn't uh, politically motivated as to whether or not it made any sense. I uh, wasn't sure it did because of the fact that I wasn't sure how much people were exporting or how much more they would export because of the uh, disc provisions. Uh, and interestingly enough, I never really uh, tried to tout the fact that my clients were adopting discs so that they could have the uh, incentives to export because I really didn't know if they did or did not. And as sure. it turns out, even today, when we were, uh, we just had these SUMA cases and we were jumping ahead, but uh, with the disc owned by a Roth IRA, we did not try to imply that the clients were um, incentivized to export because of the disc provisions because we just couldn't prove it. Sure, sure. Okay, well, that that makes sense. And, and when this came online in 1971, could you have imagined that it would still be in existence uh, 48 years later? Well, of course, the answer is no. As a matter of fact, okay. it's, it's interesting because at the time, there were a number of us younger associates uh, who were told to try to learn about areas that were becoming popular in the area and the code so that we could be uh, up to date. And uh, various uh, tax provisions came in and left, and the disc was always on its way out, but never quite made it out. Uh, just to let you know, the disc was introduced by the, I think, the Ford administration as a Republican uh, uh, export benefit for 
the benefit of large and small businesses. A few years later, the Republicans decided to get rid of DISC, but the Democrats decided it was a good um, small business uh, incentive, and so they decided they wanted to keep it in. And so every so often, the DISC provisions are designed to be legislated out and come right back in again. And most recently, the Tax Reform Act of 2016, uh, the DISC was out in the um, Senate report. They were going to get rid of DISC, and then some of the senators refused to vote for the bill unless this came back in again, so uh, it's still there. Yeah, and I think you had mentioned to me uh, before that that one of the reasons that it seems like uh, you know that there's not a lot of people that have really specialized in the disc to the extent you have is because of this whole idea that quote it's going away, uh, and like you just mentioned, it's been quote going away for 48 years now, hasn't it? I would say with the about every five years, there's something that's been proposed to get rid of it or change it dramatically. In fact, at 19, the big shift came in 1984 when the uh, disc was held to be in violation of the General Agreement of Tariffs and Trade. And that's when the, uh, the Foreign Sales Corporation provisions were adopted in order to try to meet the disc ob uh, objections. But this was kept in as an interest charge disc to designed to help the smaller exporters who didn't want to go offshore. So in 1984, there was a substantial shift in the DISC provisions, but they stayed in the code, whereas the Foreign Sales Corporation came in and then ultimately in 2000 was uh, phased out again. Okay. Yeah, so one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the on the show is because, uh, you know, you really had a ringside seat from, from you know, the very beginning of DISC. And what I'd, I'd kind of like to do is, is really just kind of go through and, in kind of chronological order uh, through the history of the disc. And you had mentioned, you know, 1984 you know, was a major year because of, uh, you know, the issues with the Foreign Sales Corporation. Uh, was there anything before 84 that's, you know, that, that comes to mind, you know, any relevant things or was the disc pretty quiet from 71 to 84? Well, actually, from 71 on, there was a, a lot of litigation. There was, of course, there were proposed regulations, final regulations. There were amendments to the regulations, and uh, there was litigation. Um, the interestingly enough, uh, while the most recent cases we were trying were substance over form cases, uh, the service has always been trying to put more substance into the disc. And for the most part, uh, the regulations that the service came out with were held invalid by the tax court. Just about all of the cases involving discs were tax court cases, except for the Caterpillar tractor case, which. We'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, basically the disc was required to have its own bank account, and that was held to be invalid or decided it would be invalid. Uh, there were uh, a number of uh, requirements for discs uh, to meet that uh, the taxpayers challenged when they were found to be invalid. So uh, if you look at the history of the disc um, litigation, a good portion of it uh, involved validity of regulations. Some of the regulations were upheld. They, they weren't all uh, generally attacked, but the uh, uh, certainly some of the ones in, in requiring more than a, a bare-bone structure were struck down. Hmm. Okay, and you're saying those happened over the course of several cases, you know, during those first 10 years or so? I would say through the 70s, there was, there were quite a bit of uh, disc litigation. Okay, and, 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 in, and just to make sure I understand, so that the, the service was trying to basically force more substance to the disc 
uh, yes. and that, that the litigation that much of the time the, uh, the, the service lost that, uh, that, that, you know, lost in that, in that endeavor. Uh, but some of the times they were, uh, they were successful. Is that correct? I think, uh, that is correct. In fact, um, one of the cases I tried, the Swanson tool case, which is one that was in the IRA case, uh, we went for attorney's fees on the basis that there was no reasonable basis for the service to uh, uh, take its position, and we were upheld on that that basis. And uh, one of the points made by the court was that uh, the plain language rule had to be uh, strictly followed in the disc area because of the fact that it was totally statutory. Hmm. Okay. Well, you had, that's interesting. You had mentioned the Caterpillar tractor case, and was that also around 1984, about the same time as the Fisk? Uh, no, no, you... it was in the early 70s. Oh, um, it was that long ago. Okay, well, why don't, we, why don't we jump into that? Why don't you tell us about that case and, uh, you know, kind of the significance of that? Yeah, I almost forgotten about it when we tried the uh, other cases, but uh, the Caterpillar tractor case involved a regulation which basically said that a uh, WHTC, which was the forerunner of the disk, uh, could not generate, I think, qualified export receipts to a disk uh, with respect to its transactions with the disk on the basis that the uh, the disk was intended to be a replacement for the WHTC and not, not work in, uh, in, in tandem with the WHTC. And the Court of Claims, uh, Claims Court, then the Court of Claims, uh, held that the uh, regulation was invalid, that the uh, there was nothing in the legislation of either the WHTC or the DISC which prevented either one from using the other. And therefore, even though there was it was an assignment, basically an assignment of income, and that's, the, that's the phrase that the uh, claims court used, there was nothing to prevent it. So that if you're looking for a, a history of invalid regulations in terms of transactions between uh, two tax exempt entities, you'll, you'll find that the in the um, Caterpillar tractor case. Hmm. And when, when did the Western Hemisphere uh, Trade Corporation either uh, cease to exist or when when did it fall out of favor? Uh, probably 72, 73. It was not too much longer after after Caterpillar, I think, that the uh, WHTC went out. And in fact, it might have gone out before the case was decided. I can't remember now. Okay. I haven't had a question involving the Western Hemisphere Trade Corporation for many years. So. Okay, yeah. Well, I always I always try to to uh, to, uh, to ask you novel questions uh, as as uh, as I'm able to. Uh, so okay, so we had the, the Caterpillar tractor case. And were you involved in that case, or was that a was that somebody else that was responsible for that? Uh, I had nothing to do with the case itself, but I had a large. Uh, taxpayer who had used the WHTC and uh, we were able to file amended returns going back to all the open years that uh, we would qualify for so that we were able to get all the benefits of the WHTC uh, for that company. But I had did not have the pleasure or responsibility for shepherding that case through. So basically your client was able to benefit uh, without having to pay any of the legal fees to uh, to get to that point. That sounds like it good outcome for your client? Well, I think we paid charge them. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Understood. Um, so uh, after the Caterpillar case, what, what, what's the next maybe case that comes to mind chronologically that had uh, significance? Uh, 
uh, either you know case or, or change in in rules? Well, I think the what came about was in the late seventies or maybe when it, whenever the IRA provisions came into effect. Um, I don't take responsibility for it. There was one of our um, employee benefits people got together with another tax guy and they had lunch and they sort of drafted out on a piece of paper having a disc owned by a, by an IRA. And uh, that was in the 70s or early 80s that uh, that the concept came through and um, ultimately the service started challenging that after a while. But I would say in terms of my practice, that was the next uh, big thing. Uh, I think it's important to note that initially the disc was the child of the large exporters. Uh, mm-hmm. That was where the, the big money was because the the disc was designed to be a deferral vehicle, but unlimited deferral, and it was based on uh, creating exports. And initially there was, it was an unlimited deferral, then they, they put in deemed distributions to cut back the benefit. But uh, some of the, the biggest companies in the world, like uh, Caterpillar Tractor and uh, uh, I know Pillsbury when they when the disc got phased out they were they were uh, providing for income tax when when the uh, the disc provisions were forgiven in 1984 they think they recognized about a three or four dollar uh, special uh, uh, income item per share because wow. of the fact that they were they were forgiven all this the tax um, the um, I think one of the other big things was I think Caterpillar Tractor was responsible for the transaction by transaction rulings. Up to that point, almost everybody had grouped their transactions. And in the Caterpillar case, uh, it wasn't a case. It was really actually a revenue ruling that they got from the service saying that they could do transaction by transaction, which in most cases uh, multiplied the disk benefit uh, exponentially. Uh, sure. In fact, you could now pick the best pricing method, 4% versus 50-50, and do that on a transaction-by-transaction basis. Now, not every taxpayer got a billion-dollar benefit, but um, it did ripple to have ripple-down effects so that most people could could adopt it. Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah, the yeah, you... difference. Uh, the big difference was the disk at, up till 1984, uh, well, before we we'd started using it as a as a um, tax avoidance permanent avoidance method to the shareholder owned disc, but basically because of the the, the big players, the uh, publicly held companies, it was basically a deferral vehicle, and they were companies were using it for that. And by 1984, you had companies such as Caterpillar and General Motors and other like Microsoft. Um, I think the biggest Boeing, one was Boeing. Boeing, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, they had they had maybe a billion dollars or more of deferred income in the disk. So in 1984, when the disk was held to be invalid under the gap provisions, uh, the, the fisk replacement was widely promoted by all these companies because under the, the disk replacement of the fisk, all the disk deferred income got forgiven. So any, any accumulated disk income in 1984 was to be distributed tax-free, which was a, a big bonus. And as mentioned before, Billsbury recognized a huge dividend uh, sure. or, or, or income uh, shift because they no longer had to provide for the tax. Yeah, that's really amazing uh, that you think about it, that, that there was a benefit that, that that or a ruling that resulted in just you know, in, in billions of dollars of benefits to, uh, you know, mostly Fortune 500 companies, right? Yeah, yeah I remember going to a, a meeting where, where Fisk was being discussed, and the guy from one of these big companies said, 
I don't really give a damn what's in the legislation as long as we can get that money back tax free. Sure, sure. Yeah, he'll he'll worry about that later. But uh, let's let's capture that uh, that uh, that uh, deferred income uh, tax free. Um, okay, so then and so that was you know early eighties, and then uh, what was the next kind of significant uh, case or event? Was was this the the Bluebird case? By now, or, well, or is there something else that comes to mind? Well, I'd have to go back to my search my memory as to whether what other significant uh, cases there were. Um, I, I would uh, have to go through the, the, um, the literature. My, my involvement was primarily through the um, IRA and the offshore ownership of discs got to be more and more popular, although the offshore ownership of disc. Uh, we had one case that we got docketed and settled it, but never really has um, uh, percolated as anything. The IRS has definitely attacked. So uh, the, the IRA cases is one where they've always been adverse to the uh, idea of having a disc owned by a t another tax exempt entity, similar to the Caterpillar tractor case. So mm -hmm. um, I got involved with um, basically the IRA structure, and, and that was challenged by the service constantly. And uh, the Bluebird body case was in the um, uh, late 80s, I guess it was, I'm trying to remember, 86, 87. And that was a case where we had a disc owned by a qualified profit-sharing plan. And at that time, the disc dividends could flow in the plan tax-free. Mm -hmm. uh, and what the service tried to do is disallow the disc uh, commission on on 482 section 482 grounds, even though the uh, the code and regulations said you could not apply 482 to disc commissions, and then ultimately they conceded that case in the tax court. But then legislation was introduced, and section 995G was implemented, which provided that disc dividends were to be subject to UBIT tax or unrelated business income tax, uh, which were that had not existed before. So when that happened, so when that happened, then did you think that was you know going to be you know, kind of the resolution to the IRA owned disc that as long as the uh, IRAs were willing to pay the UBIT tax that it, it'd be you know, kind of smooth sailing? Uh, yeah, obviously, I, I did, um, and that lasted a couple of years until the service decided that they would that the disc provisions that the 995G was not dispositive and. Uh, I think it should be noted that the DISC and the IRA structures were never intended to necessarily go together. They're just two pieces of legislation that happened to fit. But in the in executing the IRA structure, you had to make certain that you did not um, have prohibited transactions or do things that you weren't allowed to do with qualified plans. And if you did them, you could disqualify the plan and disqualify the DISC. So uh, there's always the... Uh, the possibility of uh, doing something wrong, and uh, the next case that we had was the Caterpillar, not Caterpillar, but the Swanson Tool case, in which the service took the position that while they couldn't make a 42 adjustment, they were going to uh, uh, treat uh, the disc transactions as prohibited transactions, and therefore disqualify the uh, the IRAs on that basis. Okay. Now, the, interesting, the interesting thing about Swanson Tool is. Um, Similar to the the Bluebird body case, by the time the, when the case came up for submission to the court, the service conceded the Bluebird body case. Uh, the same thing happened in the Swanson tool cases. When we, it came time to submit the case for uh, decision, 
the service conceded the case. But my client didn't want to pay any more fees unless we could recover attorney's fees. So I, I filed a motion for attorney's fees in that case. And we fortunately were able to meet the requirements for attorney's fees qualification. And the That's Swanson amazing. Tool case, the Swanson Tool case came out. It was not a decision for the taxpayer because we'd already won the case. It was a, it was the, the only issue is whether or not the service had a reasonable basis for its decision. And therefore, we were awarded a, attorney's fees on the basis that the service did not have a reasonable basis for its, its position that there was a prohibited transaction. So that's how we won attorney's fees on that case. And the case itself, of course, has been cited for the proposition that you can't have prohibited transactions on the payment of disk commissions or receipt of disk dividends. But if, you know, the truth be known, it's not a case where we won the case because the service conceded it. Hmm. So is that, I, I can't imagine it's very, you know, that it happens all the time that you can get the service to pay attorney's fees. Is that a, a somewhat unusual circumstance or does it happen uh, or is that something that happens frequently? Uh, it happens more against the taxpayer than against the government. Oh, really? Okay. Okay. So a, a lot of the frivolous cases, the tax protester cases, what have you, are are ones where attorney's fees get awarded against the taxpayer. Where um, to, to get them against the government, it's 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 a little bit more unusual. Yeah, and I'm just curious when the when the taxpayer has to pay attorney's fees, how's that calculated? Because I would assume that most of those attorney's fees are just you know the in-house folks at the service. Uh, the um, there's a rate that they use. Oh, okay. In fact, the rate that was applied, recovered attorney's fees was a substantially lower rate than our normal billing rate. Oh, I see. So it's like the same rate regardless of which side wins. It's a it's a formulaic calculation. Right. Of course, we were more interested in the attorney's fees for the taxpayer than, than what the government could could recover. But but basically, there's it's like a frivolous penalty provision for more for the taxpayers. Okay. Um, and then, so what, what uh, comes to mind next? I think, was there a, a jet research versus the commissioner case? Well, that, those cases um, came down. Uh, basically, the jet research and the, um, uh, I forgot the other one, but the. Um, uh, uh, the is that the Addison? Addison, yeah. They were basically two sides of the same coin. One the taxpayer was, was contending for, and the other was the uh, government. The, the question arose in those cases as to whether or not what you, what you did with the disk after it was disqualified. And the um, the taxpayer, and I believe it was uh, Addison, wanted the entire disk disregarded and the uh, commission reversed, whereas the, the government said, well, you paid the commission and we didn't make any 42 allocations, you're stuck with it. And then the court upheld that. So the answer was that you have to be careful. If you, if you pay a disk commission and um, you don't reverse it timely, uh, you could end up having to pay tax in a company you have no no intention of using for tax purposes. The JET research case was just the opposite. It was one where the taxpayer didn't qualify and the government was trying to take the entire disk commission and put it back into the uh, into related supplier, but it was a buy-sell disc, and the court held that even though it was disqualified, they 
it's still a corporation and entitled to 482 pricing. So I think the court let, left 10% of the income in the uh, in the company. But basically, both cases said that you cannot apply substance over form to either a, a qualified disc or a disqualified one. Hmm. In, in those two cases, and I don't believe you were involved in either of those. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So, uh, kind of staying in the sequence, because I think those cases were uh, in the 90s. Is that right? For Addison and uh, yep, Jefferson, they were, they were, or late 80s? Yes, they were, they were there. In fact, we, of course, we were relying them on them when the, um, the attacks on the Roth IRA started. The, um, the the Swanson tool case was a traditional IRA, uh, and, but the, the next case that came up uh, was um, interesting about Swanson. By the way, is there was a disc and a fisc in that case, and and, it, and the fisc was also being used for uh, IRA purposes. Uh, it sort of gotten lost in the shuffle. But initially, the IRA concept w- with a disc was. Um, not a disc was with the foreign sales corporation and with the disc, but the foreign sales corporation was used more readily than the, the disc was. So in the hmm. Swanson tool case, there was a disc and a fisc owned by an IRA. And um, uh, that case involved actually as um, a tangential issue, the 995 G um, UBIT income being imposed on the disc. But not on the disc dividends. Well, UBIT was never imposed on the FISC. The FISC always paid its own tax. The, the, oh, way, the, okay. FISC, the way the FISC worked was it, is it was like a regular foreign corporation, but uh, 16 23rds of its income was tax-exempt, and 8 23rds was effectively connected income with the U.S. trader business. So uh, when you paid a commission to the FISC, you got a deduction for 16 23rds of the, uh, of, the, uh, of, the, of the commission, I guess it was, in um, 823rds got got tax and was got remitted tax free. Okay, well that is an interesting uh, interesting uh, side. I there. might have my numbers mixed up. It's been a while since I did the math, but basically okay. that that was Fair the enough. point: is that a, a portion of the corporation's tax was exempt from U.S. tax on remittance. But the fisc only benefited corporations because the dividends received deduction that you got on fisc dividends only applied to U.S. corporations. Okay, and C corps at that, I guess, right? Yeah, at all times the disc was a C corporation. The fisc was a C corporation. Well, the fisc had to be located in a qualifying jurisdiction outside the United States, commonly mm-hmm. the Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, when we go kind of to the next significant case, does that bring us to Helweg, or was there something, any other cases that come to mind that had some, you know, significance? I- I have to think. I really didn't, didn't do a survey of all the dis- cases that came down, but our next big case was the Hellwig case, where the service decided that um, uh, they'd already lost in 482. They'd lost on, subs- not, uh, on sort of substance over form. They'd, they'd lost on uh, uh, just about everything else they could think of. So they decided that they'd go after the excise tax. Um, and what they did is they said that even though the disc commissions were deductible for income tax purposes, the excise tax was a different animal, and you could not apply safe harbor rules to excise taxes that you could apply to the income taxes. So in the Howard case, they allowed the deductibility of the disc commissions, 
but they held that there was an excise tax due for an excess contribution because they, you could not apply the disc provisions to the excise tax provisions. Hmm. Okay. And then, so could we maybe just back up a little bit? Because I know this one, you know, this has a lot of significance as it relates to SUMA, I believe. So on the, that Hellwig case, uh, you got involved, like, I guess when it was audited, or were you involved in the initial structuring uh, of their disc? Uh well, we had Helwig and we had um, another case called Ashman, O-H-S-M-A-N. And Helwig was one I believe that we instituted ourselves. I mean, we, from the ground up, we we, we organized the uh, the discs and the uh, and the Roth IRAs. We didn't organize, but we worked with the with the custodians. Uh, the Ashman case was one that was referred to us. Um, and the Ashman case was a foreign sales corporation case owning a, uh, uh, a Roth IRA. Um, and the, the same result was that they allowed the, uh, the Fisk Commission, but they didn't allow the uh, constructive contribution to the uh, uh, Roth IRAs. They held up as an excess contribution in both cases. Mm, okay. So could you just, I, I know we've kind of went through that Hellwig case, you know, kind of quickly. Could we just, you know, maybe take a, take a step back. So what year, do you remember what year the legislation or the, uh, the litigation started on the Hellwig case? Oh, uh, let's see. I think we got 2000. I think, um, I'm trying to remember, I think 2011, or I think is when it was finally decided. I don't have it right. In, I can grab it, but I think that's when the the case finally came out. Uh, incidentally, just about all the cases that we've tried have been uh, fully stipulated. Um, all the I can't try, but I think all the disc cases were were fully stipulated. We did not have to have any uh, any testimony presented at trial. Everything was came in as a fully stipulated case. Could you pardon my ignorance of of that legal term? Can you just more what fully stipulated means? Sure. Um, in, in every case, the parties are supposed to stipulate the facts that, they, that, are, un, that are not being uh, litigated or agreed facts. Okay. So if you have a fully stipulated case, that means both parties agree on the essential facts of the case. And the okay. court can, can decide the case based on the stipulated facts rather than having to find facts as a matter of evidence. I see. Now, now and I guess that's yeah, that's tell me why that yeah, tell me about that, okay, because it's the standard of review of a fully stipulated case means that the reviewing court uh, reviews the case what they call de novo, in other words the the reviewing court is not bound by any of the decisions of the court below it, okay Whereas a, a case that has evidentiary facts uh the the reviewing court must accept those facts as found by the lower court unless clearly erroneous. Oh, that is really interesting. So let me just make sure I understand this. So on the, when you have a uh, fully stipulated, is that the term? Yes. So when you have a fully stipulated case, when it goes up uh, a level, it becomes a de novo case in which the, the evidentiary items are not taken into account. Well, the other, all evidentiary items are, are deemed stipulated. In other words, um, for example, uh, just uh, as an aside, in the SUMA case, uh, the, we stipulated with the IRS that the taxpayer's basis in the disk stock, I mean, the IRA, the Roth IRA's basis in the disk stock was book value, 
we they we stipulated with them. Uh, that then came up later on uh, in a companion case that we were not part of. We talked to the attorneys called Mazie, M-A-Z-Z-E-I, in which the uh, tax court found that the um, was a shared fisc situation was improperly valued, and therefore they considered the owner of the fisc stock to be uh, uh, the uh, related supplier rather than a Roth IRA. In our case, we'd already stipulated that the that the disc stock was owned by the Roth IRAs, and we also stipulated what the basis was. And therefore, uh, the SUMA cases were distinguished from the Maisie case on the basis that uh, that was not an item in issue. And this was cited by all three courts that, were, that, were, that came up on appeal, that they, they were not going to address whether or not the stock was properly valued because it was not an issue in the case. I and see. Of, and because it was stipulated, they, they could not go behind it. Oh, that is that is uh, that is very interesting. Well, I know we've been I've been chomping at the bit. I, I uh, is it time to get into the Suma case? To me, this case is just so fascinating. If there's nothing else, let's get into the Suma case. Okay. Uh, well, of course, the Helwood case. Okay. I think we should point out that the Helwood case was decided in favor of the taxpayer, and okay. uh, and that the the court held that basically the. Uh, as long as you got a deduction for income tax purposes on the disc commissions, that the service was prevented from finding an excess contribution to the Roth IRAs. Okay. So that's the holding of the of the Helwig case. Interestingly enough, it was the last case that Judge Nims decided, who was retired from the tax court immediately after our case was entered. And the handwriting on the wall was that the case was issued as a memorandum opinion of the court rather than a uh, what they call a published opinion of the court. Uh, the significance is not as great as it used to be, but uh, basically a, when a decision is issued as a tax court decision there in the tax court volume, it has greater precedent than if it's issued as a memorandum opinion. Memorandum opinions are considered to have less precedential value than published opinions, even though they can be cited as precedent. Oh, really? And we th- and when the Helwig case and the Ashman case had the same result, we were surprised that they didn't come out as published opinions, but as memorandum opinions. But I think the reason for that was when the next case came out, which was the uh, Suma case, uh, the Helwig case was was not as binding precedent as it would have been had it come out as a tax court opinion. So I think I we, we think now that even after the Helwig decision came out, uh, there were certain judges that would have made more of a fuss about it than they they did because Nims was retiring and that was his decision and they probably just let it go. So ours was the next case up, which was called Summa Holdings Inc. And Summa Holdings Inc. then became the next case up where the service, unlike the Helwig case, they, the service for the first time argued that you could not pay a disc commission where the disc was owed owned by an Roth IRA on substance over form principles. And so that was, so what they did in the Helwig case is they accepted the disc commission as giving rise to disc benefits. In the SUMA case, they took the position that there never was a disc commission, that the entire commission could be reallocated as a constructive dividend to the related supplier shareholder and then a constructive contribution to the Roth IRAs. Hmm. Well, could, could you just, kind of back up like you remember the year that that assume started i think it was like was it 04 05 that they had their first you know, years that they used yeah, it. yeah i think 2000 
two was the um, uh, was the first year that the uh, uh, Roth IRA structure was put in place. And so when we were, we were involved in the uh, structuring of the company, uh, people asked okay. what's the difference between litigation and uh, planning, and I said one's before the fact, and one the other one's after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're, you're always planning. So, uh, in this case, the uh, we had the structure set up, uh, and we did things the right way. We had the Roth IRA. We set up the Roth IRAs. The Roth IRAs then formed the disc, and the dropped the disc stock and, and, and put the disc stock on the Roth IRAs. We also had a holding company. So the, the I think I, maybe it was the Roth IRA formed the holding company. The holding company formed the disc. It didn't really matter. But the point was is that everything was done internally. And by the way, just uh, you cannot you cannot transfer property into an IRA. You can only ca- transfer cash. So if you're going to in, and have your IRA make an investment, it's got to invest cash. So you cannot transfer stock into a Roth IRA because that that would be a, an invalid transfer of assets. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's good to know. So, so we so have assume. That- I'm, I'm sorry. I was just trying to make sure I had the chronology. So they started using this in about '02, and then several years later, the IRS audited them or or notified them that they didn't agree with their uh, approach. Or yeah, they they were audited from time to time. Now they were around when the Helwig case was decided, and so uh, uh, it just it wasn't their turn yet, so, so to speak. Um, okay, and. Um, Interestingly enough, the only years they picked were the open years, uh, 2008. Even even though the uh, the there was there were no uh, excise tax returns filed, but they took the same position in Helwig as I'm sorry in Summa as they had in Helwig, except for the fact that unlike Helwig, they were now disallowing the disc commission. Okay. And so then your your uh, initial argument then, uh, or what was your response then to that when they when they were disallowing the commission? Well, our official response was that they yeah. couldn't do it. Our unofficial response was a little more emphatic. Um, okay. We, we we felt that by this time they'd lost every single argument they made, and they were still attacking the structure. And now they're attacking the disc commission, which seemed to be fairly uh, straightforward. To, I mean, the disc commission is provided for by statute. And right. There's, 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 there are no exceptions for the disc commission being deductible and being income of the disc. And so their position was that there never was a disc commission. That's, 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 and it took us a while to figure out how why, why they were saying that. But their position was is that the um, uh, that the Roth IRA limitation provisions were being um, uh, abused, and, and in substance, because the disc didn't do anything, there was nothing more than a constructive dividend from the related supplier to its shareholders, and therefore, okay. they 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 never imposed the gift tax, but they they took the position that whether or not there was a gift tax, there was a constructive contribution by the beneficiaries of the Roth IRA to the Roth IRA. I should point hmm. out that in in this. In both Helwig and in Summa, what you really had is uh, disproportionate ownership involved. Um, you had the father who would own the, the stock of the, uh, pretty much all the stock of the related supplier, and the children owning the disc stock, which then went into the um, uh, Roth IRA, so that the, the ownership of the disc was not the same as the ownership of the related supplier. And why did that bother the service? 
because I mean that's allowed for. I mean, there's no statutory prohibition, is is there, that the ownership of the disc have to be the same as the related supplier? Well, because their problem was not so much that they had, years before they had. When you talk about use of the disc as being a uh, deferral device, uh, it was always accepted, or pretty much from the very beginning, we, we did it, as if you had the disc stock owned by the shareholders of a C corporation, you could avoid corporate tax on the disc commissions. Okay. So, so you had a C corporation, uh, and it's really closely held because you couldn't do that for publicly held, but if you had a C corporation uh, owned by X, Y, and Z, and then X, Y, and Z owned stock of the disc and X, Y, and Z were individuals, the disc dividends, um, the disc commissions were deductible to the C corporation and the disc dividends became taxable solely to the shareholders and you avoided corporate taxation. Sure. So, and the service issued a number of private letter rulings and pronouncements, GCMs, what have you, accepting this result, even though it was clear that this was being done solely to avoid income tax. Hmm. So, so then, what happens next with with Suma then? Because I know that you know there were several appeals, and so just kind of help me understand the the sequence. So, the the uh, service was making their argument. Um, you you disagreed, and then uh, what happened next? Well, we we argued that the uh, result under um, Roth IRA had to be the same as under traditional IRA. I don't want to get into more of the details, but the the uh, the tax court accepted that rationale and said that um, the uh, Hellwig case really didn't get into the uh, nuts and bolts of the uh, ownership of the of the of the disc and and the um, and the ability to disallow the disc commission because everything was accepted by the service and that because of the Roth IRA limitations on contributions being two or three or four or five thousand um, dollars the disc commissions were a abuse of those limitations and therefore uh, were violative of Congress's intent and should therefore be disallowed as commissions to the disc okay. and rather be treated as constructive dividends. Okay. And that's what's, and so the, the make a long story short, or not make it as long as you want it, but the tax court sided with the IRS and said, yes, you're correct that this is a, uh, this is an abuse and therefore should be disallowed. And rather than having disc commissions, we had constructive uh, dividends to the uh, shareholders of the of the related supplier, and then excess contributions by the children of the um, of the owner of, of the company uh, as excess contributions to the Roth IRAs, and that's what set up the three appeals. Gotcha. It, it, tur it turned out that the related supplier, Summa Corporation, uh, is located in um, Cleveland, Ohio. And, pay, and files its tax return there, and therefore became a Sixth Circuit taxpayer. Okay. The, the majority owner of the company, uh, a guy named Jim Benenson, uh, was was an, is a resident of New York, and therefore okay. was in, in the Second Circuit. His children, James Third and, and Clement, uh, lived in Massachusetts, and therefore the um, excess contributions to the Roth IRAs were were deemed to be made by, by them and taxable to them, and they were in the, the first circuit. Okay. Uh, so we we wanted to go to sixth circuit, but the uh, IRS insisted that the case be appealed to all three circuits that had jurisdiction over the individuals. 
So we had to file the appeals in the first, second, and sixth circuits. Okay, so that's why that you had the, the three different uh, appellate uh, court uh, processing or processes going on. So which one was uh, decided first? Well, the first was one we frankly wanted to get decided first was the Sixth Circuit case, uh, because the Sixth Circuit had um, decided the Addison International case, in which okay. they held that there could not be substance over form to a disc. We thought that would be the best place to go. So okay. we. We uh, appealed the case to the uh, Sixth Circuit first, and then to the First and Second Circuits. Um, what happened in the Sixth in the Sixth Circuit then? What was the uh, well? Two know, things happened. What, one, uh, since we were in the Sixth Circuit, we asked to have the other two circuits um, postponed until the Sixth Circuit uh, handed down its decision. Okay. And interestingly enough, the First Circuit. Uh, said that they would do so, but we had to stipulate that we would be bound by the Sixth Circuit's decision. And so we agreed that, to that. And then the First Circuit, which initially didn't, didn't buy the argument, they when, when the First Circuit, I'm sorry, the Second Circuit realized the First Circuit was going to postpone the case, they agreed to postpone it on the same basis that if we agreed to be bound by the uh, Sixth Circuit's decision, uh, they would postpone hearing the case. And uh, now, if you want a war story, as an aside, when I went before the Second Circuit, uh, we'd already won the cases in the First and uh, Sixth Circuits. And uh, the chief judge said to me, by Mr. Block, she says, you know, just don't put on your high hat. We know darn well that if you would have lost the first two cases, you'd be right here trying to get a split of the uh, circuits, just like the government is. <laughs> and I said, well, no, that's not true, Your Honor. She said, why is that not true? I said, because we stipulated we'd be bound by the Sixth Circuit. And if we were lost in the Sixth Circuit, we couldn't come before your court. <laughs> so, you know, brownie point for us on that one, I guess. But anyway, uh, so the Sixth Circuit did get the, the Sixth Circuit did get briefed and argued before the First and Second Circuits. Okay. And then so the and then the findings or the ruling of the Sixth Circuit then uh was what? Uh, Sixth Circuit unanimously found that for the taxpayer for us on our, our side that the statute was clear. There was no basis for departing from the statute. There was nothing to prevent a Roth IRA from owning stock of a disc and basically adopted the position we had in the uh, tax court saying that uh, there was nothing wrong with what we did and therefore there was no constructive dividend to the shareholders and no excess contributions to the uh, Roth IRAs. And we thought that based on the Sixth Circuit's decision, we probably won the case in the other two circuits because the Sixth Circuit addressed every issue that was before the other circuits. Mm -hmm. uh, we were wrong. Okay. <laughs> we we lost on, and the other two courts we lost on that, saying that you know, nice try, but we're gonna we're gonna tr decide both your case on the merits just as if, just like the Sixth Circuit decided on the merits, and uh, ultimately that we won in both circuits, so it it didn't matter, but. Uh, um, when you look at the opinions of all three circuits, you'll see they were, done, they were on the merits of the case, not on um, what they call stare decisis or race judicata, which is basically um, under under the law, you can't have the same case tried twice. And so if, if I win a case in, in, this, in the first circuit and they have the same issues and I'm the same taxpayer in the, in the sixth circuit, um, I'm going to get the decision of the sixth circuit too because cause they're not going to depart. They call that race judicata. 
Okay. So, but we we couldn't get race because the company was in one circuit and the father's another, and we didn't we couldn't prove that we had common ownership. Uh, make a long story short, each each taxpayer had to prove up his own case, even though it, each taxpayer's case involved the issues that were before the other circuits. Okay. In which which circuit had the ruling where the the judge really seemed to, to give a dressing down to the service and there was the, the Caligula reference? Was that the first circuit or the second circuit? Well, the dressing down came in the first circuit. Okay. The, the Caligula reference came in the sixth circuit. Oh, okay. Okay. And so I can you just talk a bit about... Think, oh, go, go ahead. Okay. Well, the judge in the sixth circuit has a reputation for being sort of flamboyant and... Uh, very okay. high, good reputation. Uh, Jeffrey Sutton's his name. And uh, uh, one thing I'll say is that the pedigree of all the judges that we had was really top notch. I mean, I could not, I could not say that we were getting. Um, uh, when I get into the current judicial appointees, but uh, I can assure you, every judge that we had was thoroughly vetted by uh, the Senate. All, all U.S. Court of Appeal judges have to be approved by by the Senate and they have special committees for that purpose. And, um, for the most part up to that, these judges were all uh, approved on basically not nonpartisan, but uh, certainly on a judicial qualification, uh, standard. Mm -hmm. And I think even judge Sutton got turned down once before he was finally approved and he's a first class judge, but every judge we had, um, was, was first quality. As a matter of fact, in the Sixth Circuit, Judge Sutton's predecessor, who was a retired judge, recalled for active duty, was also on, on our panel. So it was. Oh. Um, so wow. We, uh, so when when you looked at the, um, I think one of the judges we had in the First Circuit had, tra- had tried the case of John Gotti when he was a district judge. So. Um, oh wow. Yeah. So, now the second court, the second court, and the first courts, uh, did they also uh, issue unanimous opinions? No. Okay. Uh, we got we had eight out of the nine judges vote to reverse the tax court. The ninth judge was in the first circuit, uh, which is the same circuit that dressed down the tax court. It's interesting enough. But the the um, the, the descending judge in the first circuit was the chief judge chief justice of the of the uh, court of appeals for the first circuit. Highly respected. I said all the judges were, but she. Um, she uh, did not did not care for our case and uh, uh, was more sympathetic to the uh, tax court decision. Uh, okay. I won't get into all the, all the differences, but um, uh, she was she's the one who, of course, was the chief judge of our session. And uh, by the way, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? I'm trying to remember the uh, Jim Cosby, Bill Cosby's case was also on the same <laughs> same docket. Oh, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> So I, I can't I can't say that the PAC court was for our case, but uh, I understood. <laughs> so uh, so you had these favorable rulings from uh, uh, all three circuits. So does that mean? But the that, point was is that the first circuit majority is the one that told the tax court that the uh, that nine that the Roth IRA provisions, having adopted the same rules as the traditional IRAs, uh, was was binding bound the first the tax court to. To, to make the same finding uh, for the Roth IRAs that would have made for the uh, traditional IRAs. Which is why it goes back to the Hellwood case, right? Because the Hellwood case refers to the traditional IRA. Or, or did I? No, Hellwood was a Roth IRA. Uh, oh, it was. Oh, okay. 
be, um, let's go back to 1998. Uh, before 1998, I can't remember when the IRAs were introduced. Um, the IRA was the only IRA that you could have. But then in 1998, okay. the Roth IRAs was, were introduced in order to provide for the what they would say so was a greater incentive to save because the Roth IRA allowed you to pull all your money out at the age of 59 and a half without any income being recognized. Whereas a traditional right. IRA, you have to recognize income on, on the distribution of the, of the IRA proceeds. Okay. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. So now that you've prevailed in all three of these courts, I guess, uh, I guess it's a done deal now, right? I mean, the Roth IRA is, uh, own disk is just bulletproof, no issues, no risks. Uh, is that is that accurate? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I was kinda I was yeah, I kinda figured that'd be the answer. So uh okay, what what is what's the wrinkle? What's the wrinkle in it? Well there's two things. One, each circuit only is binding for the uh the courts in its own circuit. So um the, the the sixth circuit has, uh, for example, Ohio and Michigan, and uh, the first circuit has um, Massachusetts and I don't know, Maine or some couple other states, and then the uh, second circuit has New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, I guess. Or, uh, okay. Not Pennsylvania, but the point being is that uh, those are the only decisions that are binding. There's nothing before the Supreme Court, but any other circuit can decide to go along or not. As a practical matter, you might say that it's pretty much settled, but there's another case out there called Mazie, M-A-Z-Z-E-I, and I made slight reference to that, and that's the case where um, the issue was who owned the, the disc stock. And in, in the foreign sales corporation area, there was a thing called the shared fisk, which was designed for little tiny taxpayers to own a foreign corporation without having to spend a lot of money on it. And okay. so for 500, for 500 bucks, you could buy an interest in a shared fisk, and if a shared fisk could have 30 shareholders, so okay. that basically each interest was treated as if it was a separate foreign corporation, but it, um, the fisc itself didn't have much have any substance in the. Uh, it was basically a gimmick in order to allow people to have it. But in the Maisie case, the court held that uh, because the shared fisc was purchased, not originally incorporated, that you had to look to see whether or not the uh, proper valuation was placed on the stock, and who got the benefit from the valuation. And, and the court held the tax court held that. In that case, the related supplier would be deemed to own the disc stock, not the uh, or yeah, the, the fisc stock in that case, rather than the um, Roth IRA. Okay. Now, fisc, fisc is dead, and the shared fisc is was unique to the fisc. It doesn't exist in the disc area, but they did raise the issue as to whether or not the proper valuation was paid for the fisc stock. Now, that was a purchase in that case. Ours was original issue, which is a, which mm -hmm. is a different animal, and the tax court di differentiated between original issue from purchase. But the fact is, all the courts of appeal made reference to the fact that we had stipulated our case, and it wasn't stipulated in the Maisie case, so uh, it's sort of sort of still out there. Okay, so has the Maisie case not been settled then yet or resolved? No, the, the Maisie case was decided in favor of the government on the basis that the uh, oh I see that the, that the true purchaser of the of the Fisk stock was the related supplier or its shareholders. They didn't decide which one, but in any event, okay. there was no there was no Fisk um, benefit. There was a constructive uh, dividend, uh, not a constructive dividend, but the the Fisk was actually owned by the uh, by the shareholders, and therefore the Fisk. Uh, dividend did not go to the IRA; it went to the uh, individual shareholders. 
And that, okay. case on, that case is on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. And is this a case that you're arguing? No. Okay. I, I am, I've been in touch with the attorneys, uh, obviously, on that case, but it is not our case. Okay. So is it safe to say, then, that if a taxpayer is in the First, Second, or Sixth Circuit, that their position is conceptually uh, superior to a taxpayer that's in that's not in one of those three circuits, or for practical matters, is okay. But it, I know of no cases that are pending in any other circuits. Okay. So. Um, and and in fact, I've had other cases conceded by the government uh, with the same issue. So I would say that the that the. The probability for success with the Roth IRA structure now is very high. Okay. So what do you then, so say uh, uh, somebody, you know, comes to you, uh, you know, a potential client and, and says, yeah, we, uh, you know, we, we, we're interested in this Roth structure. Um, uh, you know, what, what are your thoughts, Neil? You know, should we do it? Should we not do it? Or, you know, how might you, you know, answer, you know, such a question? Okay. Um, well, first of all, since we're going to have a future session, there are other disk structures that are available, and may or may so that the Roth IRA structure may not be the structure which is the best for the individual taxpayer. But I would say you. is that if you want to go with the Roth IRA structure, it should not be subject to attack because it's the Roth IRA structure. Okay. You still have to make sure you you cross your. Uh, P's and dot your I's and making sure that you don't have prohibited transactions and what have you, but the, the basic structure should be available. Okay. Well, that is, is helpful. Well, uh, geez, I can't believe our, our hour is up already. I could, I could, uh, I could go on for hours. So I tell you what, at this point, how about if we go ahead and wrap up this episode and would you be available to have a second episode where we really go into detail on some um, some of the different structures and, and where they're appropriate? Sure. As I told the Second Circuit, I consider these things as tutorials, so <laughs> that's fine. Okay. Okay. That that uh, that sounds great then. So um, I guess the, the last question for you, um, if uh, if somebody needs to uh, or you know, wants to reach out to you or is interested in, uh, you know, in, in retaining you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you? Should they, they call you or shoot you an email? Any way they want is fine. They can okay. send me an email. Or they can call or. Um, um, could you could you go ahead and repeat or uh, or state your phone number and your email address just so? Yeah, my, my, sure. My phone number is area code three one two eight six one two nine three seven. My email my email is neil n e a l dot block b l o c k at baker b a k e r McKenzie, M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot com. Okay. Well, that is is great. And I believe from clients of ours that I've introduced to you, uh, I believe, am I correct that your policy is such that you'll, you're, you're kind of amenable to an introductory, uh, you know, kind of a brief exploratory call uh, that you typically you know, don't bill for? Is that correct? Or, or you just kind of help me understand what the, the parameters are if somebody calls you up? Sure. We don't, there, there's no problem with the, the phone call to try and find out whether or not we think what they have is doable and what have you. Okay. So, yeah, so, um, if it takes all day long, we might want to charge, but sure. Uh, but a but half hour of our time certainly is no problem. 
That's uh, that's that's excellent. Well, I really appreciate your time, Neil, and uh, I will we'll uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to to the next episode where we get into some of the structure uh, questions. And uh, just a little teaser here: I also will share the story of the most valuable lesson that Neil Block taught me about hiring experts. So we'll uh, we'll save that for that episode as well. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, again, thank you very much for your time, Neil. It's been, it was really a lot of fun and uh, I really loved uh, all, all the war stories. I could just listen to the war stories all day long. So, so thanks for taking time. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. There we have it. Another great episode. Thanks for listening in. If you want to continue the conversation, go to icdiscshow.com. That's IC dash D-I-S-C-S-H-O-W.com. And we have additional information on the podcast, archived episodes, as well as a button to be a guest. So if you'd like to be a guest, go select that and fill out the information. And we'd love to have you on the show. So that's it. We'll be back next time with another episode of the IC Disc Show.